0: And today we are rewinding back to September the 11th, 2018, originally episode 2289. It was called... Practical homesteading in the modern age. I wanted to leave you something that was nuts and bolts, how-to stuff during this uh, Rewind series. And since I'm up at the Self-Reliance Festival, and we're talking about a lot of permaculture, homesteading, animal husbandry things, I thought this would be a good one for that. And again, we're following the theme from yesterday. So yesterday we had an episode that was originally in September of 2019. Now we have one that was originally in September of 2018, because the shows do seem to follow a little bit of seasonality by topics. This is the time of year we start to think a lot about our homesteading because, well, we're coming to the end of a season, and we're coming out of summer into fall. For many of us, that means we're putting everything to bed for the year. For many of us down here in the South, it means we're actually having our best Time of year as gardeners and homesteaders from a production standpoint. All of us are probably engaged in a lot of winter prep from a standpoint of typical winter prep to also just putting food by, uh, stacking up the larder, that type of thing. Many of us are getting into the point where it's time to do our hunting for the year and maybe grab some meat that way. Uh, But it's just kind of one of those shifts of, of season. So That's probably why I decided on this subject all the way back there in 2018. It's kind of crazy, too. 2018 doesn't sound that long ago, uh, but we're talking four years now, guys. Four years, and we're also talking, this is pre-COVID. It's like nobody had even ever heard of COVID yet. Life was different before the COVIDs. And uh, for many of us, though, who practice the type of things that we're going to hear about today, it didn't really change that much. That was another reason I wanted to leave it for you. Anyway, we're going to talk today about why we homestead in the first place and how humans are cultivators and is as much for recreation as for the production and the quality of what we can produce. Got some rules for happy homesteading. This is one project at a time, start with things that are easy and fun, set and respect a budget. Build management into daily activities, smart zone design, as we call it in permaculture. Talk about some of my favorite projects for homesteading, backyard birds, kitchen gardens, seed uh, seed starting systems, building a solar heater, learning how to can food, installing rainwater, catchment, creating habitat, natural spaces, and attracting wildlife, and some final thoughts. So... Good old school style TSP episode number three in a five rewind series. I will be back with you in real time soon. Let us go now. Rewind back September 11th, 2018, originally 2289. Practical homesteading in the modern age. And a lot of things went on in the world that really bothered me, but it was grounding in the soil that, helped me figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. And we'll kind of head into the the show at this point. But um, I recently was uh, given a pretty big honor. Uh, Mark Shepard reached out to me. He's got a new book coming out this fall. He asked me if I'd write the foreword in that book. And uh, I'm pretty pleased with how it came out. But there's uh, there's a little bit of it I want to read to you right now, because I think it really helps me answer the first part of this show today, which is, why do we homestead? It took me until my mid-40s to know what I really wanted to accomplish in life. In a word, it's a transformation. I want to transform the lives of people into something more positive. I want to inspire those same people to transform landscapes. I want people to understand that we can feed ourselves far better food than we currently live on, I want people to understand that we can do it everywhere and anywhere and that we need to involve everyone willing to take the journey, that we need what I call a backyard-to-broadacre movement in our word today. If one man can transform a limestone slab into a small forest, what could a few million people do practicing slow, spread, and soak? And that's about water management, and it's not directly homesteading, but it really is. It was putting that first garden in in the fall of 2001, well, I stayed home for three weeks because we didn't know what was going to happen with the company and we didn't know what was happening in the country. And I went out the next week, uh, traveled to Connecticut for a trade show that nobody attended, but they made us go to, and then I went home for three weeks. And I did my job from home. I didn't travel anywhere. I did most of my work on the phone and, and tried to figure out what was coming with the merger. And I took those three weeks, and one of the things I did is I went out and I broke ground, and I put in a garden. And I planted some winter vegetables. And then real soon after that, my son and I built that fire pit. And it's those things that made me pull my head out of my ass. And this is why we homestead. This is why we homestead. I didn't know this show was going to go this way today, but it really is. It was, and, and it's, I guess it's good that I had to talk about nine eleven because it was that turning point for me. And uh, when I was able to, you know, all of a sudden show my, my family, my son and my wife, what I'd been talking about in my childhood. Because what, when when she met me, when Dorothy met me, Matthew was already seven years old, uh, I was in the building phase of my career. And I was working uh, one full-time job, plus I was doing contract work and putting in like 30 hours a week of contract work. And I didn't have time for a garden. I lived in an apartment. My wife lived in an apartment when we first met. And all I was doing was building my career. And then things got a lot better uh, as we moved in our relationship in my career and I started to develop all the stuff you've heard me talk about. But again, it was just, I have to get ahead. I have to get ahead. I have to get ahead. And uh, that gut check. That gut check, if your family is there and you fool are here and they're scared and you can't be there, yeah, that that, that really did turn it around. And so homesteading has this, I believe, this this ability to ground us in the fact that this place that we live really is our home. And I, I think if we don't do some level of it, it, it really isn't like a home. I never considered my apartments that I rented over the years to be my home. I might say, well, I'm going home, but I never felt like this is my place that I have an actual attachment to this place? If somebody had offered me a nicer place to live for the same money, uh, especially if they would have thrown in moving, I would have moved in an instant. And the only thing keeping me from moving was couldn't find anything better, and moving's a pain in the ass. But there was no emotional attachment. E- each of those places, the day I left them, I didn't feel anything. When we left our place, even our, our first home in, in Mansfield, Arlington area, um, we just... Left, and I think it bothered my wife a little bit. Me, I didn't. I didn't have any real attachment. I'd plant a few trees there and stuff, but I was, you know, again building the career. When we left that place in Pennsylvania, as happy as I was to come back to Texas, I felt something because the place had been more to me than just a house. It had been the beginnings of a homestead. I had fed my family with food that I grew in the soil there. I had planted trees and watched them actually grow there. I had formed community there. All of these things are where we start the grounding that is homesteading. And to me, those are some of the real reasons that we actually do this. Um, on a more practical note, I guess, humans are cultivators. I think that it is a natural human thing to observe a plant and realize the plant is good for something, whether it's food or medicine or fuel, or what have you, and then to observe how that plant grows. Does it reproduce from cuttings, or from seeds, or or how, or you know, from division? What what is What is the primary way that this plant reproduces, and what does it need, and then to provide an environment and encourage the reproduction of that plant? I think as long as human beings have had the mental capacity to truly be human beings, we've done this. From the first hunter-gatherers that simply noticed where berries grew, and probably figured out, hey, if we pull out this competing vegetation and don't do anything else, the berries will spread more. Or if we throw a bunch of mulch down here, even though they wouldn't have called it mulch, or if we uh, developed you know, develop some way to just dump water there, that it seems like when what we put water on plants, they grow to quote idiocracy. And I just think that's, that's who we are. We are part of nature. We are not separate from nature we, we we have this belief that humans are here and nature is there, and that is so false and homesteading is bringing your bringing nature into your life, not just gardens it's it's habitat for birds it's you know it, it's understanding how to do things and fix things and make things so that your backyard is like a little piece of of something that you truly manage and steward um I also think it's as much for recreation as it is for production. I I get an incredible peace when I go out and plant something or harvest something. I I have an incredibly amazing amount of, of appreciation and uh, just a humbled respect for nature and how I watched my property this year after five years of our work and, and, and management go through one of the worst droughts ever. And where we did those swale work uh five years ago, we lost almost nothing with almost no irrigation in one of the worst droughts and we're sitting in you know ten, eleven inches of soil on top of rock. And and so to me that's that's it's not just the oh yes, and I can pick apples off those trees this year and eat them. It's it's the recreation. I find the work itself to be rewarding, but To be able to go out onto a little quarter acre, half acre, three-quarter acre like I have food forest in the morning and just take a walk and go in and out those swales instead of just, you know, you can walk across the place. If there weren't any of those stupid trees in the way, you could just walk across there in 30 seconds. But following the swale lines on both sides of them back and forth and observing nature, it could take you 30 minutes without even really going that slow. And only stopping once in a while to watch a bird or something. And you can do that in your backyard. It's not just about a garden. It's when we sit outside on a on a day where it's quiet and then you thought it was quiet, but when you realize there's there's hundreds of birds singing because they're happy, because there's so many places for them to be. It it's it's pretty amazing. And the quality of the food we can produce. You know, I mean, there there is no comparison. It doesn't matter how good the food produced is that you buy in the store. The fact that it had to take a multi day journey to get to you, there's going to be a degrading in the quality. It can't compete with the pepper that you pick, and you don't even, I mean, you don't cook it. You don't bring it in the house. You don't wash it. You know, it's just it's just a pepper. It's on a plane, You just pick it off while you're walking around. You eat it like an apple. There, there's no way that anything from a supermarket, again, I don't care if it's the most organic, highest quality food ever, time alone changes the quality of food. It can't be the same. You'll, you'll never buy a chicken in a store that will taste like you know a, a few broilers that you raised in your backyard. It just won't. It can't, because it's not the same thing. There's a, a, a saying in, in, in the world of wine, it's called terroir. And it means a sense of place, a sense of place in that like a good sommelier, a wine expert could taste a a wine and then tell you not just, well, this is from this winery and it's this year and, of course, it's their Cabernet. He would say the grapes that were used in this bottle of wine were grown on the western slope because there's a certain characteristic to it that is unique to that solar exposure and that soil at that particular vineyard. And there's guys that can really do that. I can't. But I think that when you are growing your own food, the sense of place in it, because you're a part of it, is very evident. And that terroir is something that you can only get from things in your own backyard. I want to talk about some rules for happy homesteading today. Number one, one project at a time, guys. And I'm, I was the worst about this. We got here, and I went from having a, a very small backyard in Mansfield to having a five-acre place that was mostly cliff, mountain side, you know, in, in Arkansas, I'm a little quarter acre out in the front of it, um, it, to having three acres that was laid out in a perfect rectangle uh, and flat. I was like, hoo And, man, I got on it, and... A lot of stuff we did work, but a lot of stuff didn't work, but a lot of stuff never got finished. Because you're running over here and doing a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here. It's like stomping fires out, but you don't completely stomp one fire out before you run to the next one. And by the time you got the next one almost stomped out, the first one started to flare back up, and two more started because of it. And so I think that's probably the number one piece of advice I can give people for homesteading plans is sit down and make a list of everything you want. Don't don't hold back. I mean, just everything you'd like to do. And then start asking yourself, okay, self, um, which of these are the easiest to do? And put a star next to all the ones that you would look at and say they're kind of the easiest ones to do. Which ones, let's pick five that I want the most and put a star next to all those then say, out of all those, which ones are going to cost the least? Let me pick the five that I think are going to cost me the least amount of money. Put a star next to all those. And then say to yourself, okay, self, so out of all of them, which are likely to do the most for me as far as providing something back as a return? And put a star next to all those. And if you go through them, you'll probably find that some have like two or three stars. And you, what you've done is you just separate, you let a little of emotion in there, which ones what I want most. But overall, you separated emotion from logic. And it's kind of a, a cheat sheet way to an Excel spreadsheet type decision. And those are the ones you probably want to do first. You might also want to put some priority on things like, we're going to talk about backyard birds. And if you get some chicks, you know, and you're going to start getting eggs from chickens, you're going to wait about 24 weeks before you get your first egg. So you might want to go ahead and move that up a little bit, just because it's gonna take so long. But then once it starts, it's such a you know, a guaranteed ROI. That first egg a chicken lays is the most expensive egg you'll ever buy in your life. It really is, because they have a huge feed debt. But the second one's pretty much free, you know, because chickens live on chicken feed, and chicken feed's cheap. That's why we say that something's cheap is chicken feed for, for cost. cost. Um, and so you can kind of make decisions like that, but whatever it is, let's do a project at a time. And if it's going to be something like, well, I want chickens, okay, well, then what you want first is chicken infrastructure, All right? And then once you know what you're going to do for infrastructure, you go ahead and get your little babies, because they're going to be in a brooder for about three to six weeks. So... You can go ahead and get, the, as long as you know you can get the infrastructure done by the time they're ready to go into it, well, that's okay, too. But, but you know, pick the project and work the project to completion and then go to another project to completion and then go to another project to completion and your life will run a lot smoother that way. Start with something easy and fun. You know, I, the thing about chickens, I think, like, if you live somewhere you can have backyard chickens, I would do it or backyard ducks, or backyard quail. I would do backyard birds of some kind. And part of the reason is it is fun, especially if you got kids. I mean, because a baby birds are cute. They're awesome. And that you have to take care of them, and they form a bond. And it's it's got a, a real enjoyment factor. I'm, I'm looking forward in just a couple weeks, we got some new ducks coming. We've got some rowing ducks coming from Metzer Farms. And we're going to have a small flock of ducks now on the property. I think it's going to be great. Now, I'm very looking forward to having my little buddies back. So to pick something fun that you want to do. If you like woodwork, maybe just start out increasing the bird population. Build some feeders and some birdhouses or something. Pick something you're going to enjoy, because what's fun to me may not be fun to you. I actually like, when it's not a billion degrees out, I actually like really hard physical work. You know, when I was building my timber frame pond and I was pounding these, you know, Huge galvanized spikes with a sledgehammer in. I actually really enjoyed that. A lot of people wouldn't, so pick what's fun for you. Um, The next is set and respect a budget. Determine, like, okay, this month, this is how much I have, or for this project, this is how much I have, and figure out, like, what am I going to get back? It doesn't make sense to spend $1,200 putting in a garden that produces $100 worth of food a year. It's got to do better than that for you. It just really doesn't. Unless you just have money and don't care and you just want it to be that way because you want it to look a certain way. I'm not opposed to that, but most of us don't live that way. We have to, you know, what I tell Dorothy all the time in our home is you can have anything you want. There's nothing you want that we can't figure out how to have, but you can't have everything you want. So we have to make choices based on if this, then not that, or if that, then not this. And that's how most people live their lives. Most of us are not, you know, independently wealthy to the point where we can just buy a Maserati tomorrow because we want one. And then we can still go out and buy a Lamborghini the next day. That's not me. It's not you. So I don't, you know, I'll spend money to do things on my property, but I can't just go about whipping out thousand bucks here, thousand bucks there without thinking about it. So you set that budget, and you stick to that budget, and you respect that budget. And if you have to adjust the budget, then you make careful, well-thought-out decisions. You just don't go blow a bunch more money. That's how you end up with a reluctant spouse. Because you're always out there farting around with that, and you spent 1000 bucks last month, and I haven't seen anything come back. That's why I like on the priorities, trying to set something that gonna, you're going to be able to see progress with relatively quickly. You know, Microgreens, sprouts, those are two great ones. You're eating next week. Sprouts you're eating in a few days. So just some stuff to consider there. Next, build management into your daily activities. There's nothing worse than a person puts a garden in, and the garden is just a place for weeds to grow and for for uh, crops to die and be eaten by bugs. And that that comes from not maintaining it. It comes from the, you know, everybody did it back in the day. You put the garden way out in the back as it was out of the way. Well, what's out of sight is out of mind. What I loved about my grandfather's garden is without having a very big piece of land, he probably had a third of an acre, maybe maybe close to half of an acre. And uh, there was a driveway and a little front yard. And then just to the other side of the driveway, to the south side of the driveway, was the garden. It was right there. When you sat out on the porch, which is something old men do and grandchildren like to do with their granddaddies, you could just look there and there was the garden. And he, he that garden was right out by the road where people could see it. He, was pr- he wanted people to see his garden. And that built management into the daily activities, even though my grandfather wouldn't have known what you were talking about if you said the word permaculture. He would have had no idea what you were talking about. He would have thought you were some crazy hippie and told you to get off his property before he shot you. But he was practicing zone one permaculture. Because when he pulled his car into that driveway... He and he opened up the driver's side of the car. When he got out, he looked and there was his garden. And if there was something wrong with it, by God, I'm gonna fix it while I'm here. I went into town. I got my two quarts of yingling. Came home with them. And look at that weed. I'm gonna pull that weed out of there and toss it over to the chickens. So the garden was always maintained, but it was never a lot of work. Or oh, you know, peppers' leaves are starting to look a little bit yellow. Better yell at the grandson, tell him to get down there and add some fertilizer, and I'd go down and add some fertilizer, and the peppers would green back up. Oh, the tomatoes are getting pretty leggy. It's time to get them staked. Better get that boy out there in the woods. You know, he's gotten older. He wasn't doing the work. He was passing it on to me. It wasn't hard to get me to go running around with a machete and cut down a bunch of old birch saplings to make tomato steaks, though. That was pretty easy easy request to get me to follow. But that management was built into the design. For my grandfather, it was probably because that's just the only place a garden could go. The more choice you have, the more you have the ability to screw it up. So make sure that you think about where you place things. I like to say with permaculture design, and you can just call it smart design, honestly, you walk out of your back door, look down at your feet and say, what am I going to do with this square foot? And then you say, well, maybe there's nothing to do with that square foot. Okay, look at at every square foot that touches this one. What am I going to do with those? And then the next layer out, the next layer out, the next layer out, and and also you like where what I, okay that's about as close as I can get a garden. It's going to look good, and the dogs aren't going to dig a hole in it or whatever it is. Okay, so that's where the garden's going to go. Okay, how does the sun move? How do I want to orient the bed? So do I want if there's is there a hill, so I need to make sure I'm doing this on contour. Uh, is it pretty flat, so it doesn't really matter, and I need to think more about solar aspect. You know, what am I going to grow? You plan that out that way. And then you say, well, if I'm going to have birds, then I need to locate, like since this garden is going to produce food for me and food for the birds, then I don't want the birds hell and gone from the garden. So where am I going to house my birds so that whenever I come out here and I look down and I see some weeds growing, and I actually say, I'm going to let those weeds go a couple of days. I know chickens like that. And uh, it's not that big yet. I'm going to let it get a little, and when it gets big enough and you pull it out, you can just, just toss it into the birds. This type of design leads to not having things go into dishevelment and disarray and not being maintained. So build that management into your daily activities. Let's talk about some of my favorite projects for homesteading. As I said, backyard birds, I think, one way or another, are just a fantastic investment. I love quail. Uh, I I think that the fact that you can get chicks and in seven weeks you're getting eggs is is incredibly valuable if you want eggs. I think the fact that a lot of you live in places where if you get chickens, sooner or later you're going to hear from the Department of Making You Sad, but if you have quail, nobody's going to bother you at all. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that as well. And the fact that if you want meat from them, you can process a quail in 30 seconds without a knife. You can do it with your bare hands, if, you, if you're willing to. I am. Um, and you can hatch chicks... 21 days in the egg, six weeks to grow out and into the into the belly or the freezer. I think they're a fantastic animal. That said, I think the most useful backyard bird for the small homesteader is chickens. They have their their, their you know feed to egg ratio uh, is, is awesome. and they are composting machines you know you if you are, you know, on a half acre, quarter acre, any kind of a homestead that you would call like a suburban urban homestead, you almost can't produce more than than four chickens can process for you. So while I don't think they're the greatest burden in the world to let go free range because they have messed stuff up, um from a standpoint of what they can do for you, a coop and run type system or a victory garden type system with a coop with two runs, and you run them on one side one year, and the other side of the next, and garden, you know, on the time that they're out of there. I, I don't know that you can do better as a first thing for your property. You're going to need to be building fertility if you're going to be growing food, and you only want to be so reliant on, you know, even good quality organic fertilizers like products like I can recommend, like Garrett Juice and Doctor Earth. Still, it's an expense. It's an outlay. So you want to use those as like a kicker. You don't want to use them as your primary fertility. Well, if you're recycling organic matter with chickens, you got all the fertility you could ever need. And that, to me, so that's one kind of one of my favorite ones and really one of the first ones I think people should consider. Uh, don't get too many. Don't become a chicken collector. You know, really, don't. Uh ducks, I think, are another great bird. Uh, I've done a lot on that, so I won't say any more on, on it. But I think that from a standpoint, if you're going to let a bird run around without caging it up, without a tremendous amount of control with electro netting or something, which I find to be a pain in the ass, by the way. I, I just really do. Um, then I think the duck is a better choice because it's less destructive on the landscape. However, they have their own challenges. Again, I'll talk about that. But you get eggs. You get meat if you want to use them for meat purposes. They're pretty good little composters. Nothing I've found so far really shreds and dices, you know, organic matter into beautiful compost quite like a chicken does. They're just fantastic. And frankly, you know, if you're not trying to, you know, produce super extra jumbo eggs, bantam cochranes are just those are what I have and they're just the sweetest little birds. I mean, I just walk walk into my aviary with them, reach down, pick them up, throw them up on my shoulder, and they talk to me and stuff. They're just awesome little birds, so it's something to consider. Um, A kitchen garden. And i got to say, I love wicking beds. I'm hard-pressed to not recommend wicking beds for everyone at this point. And it doesn't always have to be an aquaponics thing. Um, You can dig a hole in the ground, use a pond liner as your water reserve, put a pipe down into it, some gravel, Build a standard framed raised bed around it and throw your soil in on top of weed blocker and you've got a wicking bed. You can put a float valve on it, hook a garden hose up to it, and never touch it all summer long, it'll never dry out on you. If you're not gonna do that, put some kind of automated irrigation or something and really. You know, I mean it's it's up to you. I have to say when I had my garden in Mansfield at the house I had when I started doing this show ten years ago. I had like seven four-by-eight beds, and I pretty much hand-watered them every day. And it was actually a good thing for me because I came home. I had, as, as you all know, I've been a long time. I had like an hour and 15 minutes in the car to come home in Dallas-Fort Worth traffic. Translation, I was pretty close to ready to strangle somebody to death every time I got home. So I would go in. I'd say hello to my wife, but not for very long. I would grab a beer or a Coke or something, and I'd go through the house. I go out back and I'd water that garden down every and that was all through the summer, and it was kind of good therapy for me. But if I'd had automated irrigation, I could just sat there and watch the birds fly around in it or something while I drank a beer and been just as happy. So try to try to use automation or technologies like waking beds to minimize the amount of work that you have to do. If you want something to do, you'll always be able to find it. Having to do something and wanting to do something are very, very different things. Uh, Next up, I think another really good thing to do is to set up your seed starting system. Now, I almost see that for most people being you better off doing that in your second year on a new homestead than your first. So in your first year, if you set up your birds or some sort of composting system, if you're not going to have birds, worms, just compost piles, whatever, and you put in a garden, some wicking beds, container gardens, whatever it is, and you start growing plants. There's a lot more to learn in doing that than most people think there is. There's, there's multiple skills within each one. How do you know when your compost is done? Where do you get your materials from? How do you set up your organization so material is available? When you're dropping carbon in for the chickens, you want to be able to drop some nitrogen, and when you're dropping nitrogen, you want to be able to drop some carbon, stuff like that. And so you're learning the skill of gardening and the skill of compost making. Starting seeds is another skill. And if you want to do it, God bless you, go for it. But there's no harm in buying your plants your first year. It'll give you a pretty assured success. And doing direct seed planting of bigger plants that are easy to do, like squash or something. But I think long term, you really want to be able to start your own plants. Because it's, it's so cheap. You know, I mean, it used to be really cheap to buy, go out and buy, let's say, flats of broccoli. My grandfather, for all of his peppers and tomatoes he grew himself, he never started his own broccoli and cauliflower because you could go buy a big old sheet of it for like a couple bucks. And now I see broccoli selling in, uh, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's and stuff for like $1.99 to $3 a plant. Friggin' head of broccoli don't cost that much. It doesn't make any sense. But you can buy a big pack of broccoli seeds for a dollar, and you can make hundreds of them if you want to, let alone, for instance, the 18 that I'm going to want to put in for, for a fall garden in one of my new wicking beds. Well, that's just some potting soil and some grow lights, and a pla- or even if you're going to do it outdoors, a place to set it up and a way to manage it. But it is another skill, and it's another thing to do. And so I think that it makes maybe a lot of sense. Or, you know, hey, get your garden going the first year, and if you're coming in the winter then, use that winter to set up everything for your seed starting. But definitely get something like that into place. Um, building a solar heater I think is a great little project. What I like about that is you can do it with beer cans and some scrap wood and some Lexan. And if you've never built one or don't know what I'm talking about, just go online. There's a million little sites where people show you how they've built uh basically passive solar heaters and the way these things work they're basically a box it's black inside sun shines on it and it warms the air up you put it outside a window and you uh, it puts air into your home and you can you can help warm your home in the winter with a solar heater i think it's those types of projects i could probably come on with a hundred little projects like that i think those are fantastic and they're not usually the thing that people think about when it comes to their homesteads But it's something that actually, you know, the family can see a result from as soon as it's done. Especially if you build it in fall to winter when it's cold out. And you're able to go, look, see here, now put your hand, feel the hot air coming out of there? And the electric bill goes down. And all of a sudden, some scrap wood and some cans made the electric bill go down. Now we have a little bit more money we can look at maybe doing a few more projects the next year than we did before. So I like stuff like that. Solar dehydrators, I think, are cool. But until you get enough production, that a nine KX uh, nine tray X caliber won't do it for you. I don't know that I'm going to mess with it. Um, learning how to can food, and you don't have enough enough food out of your garden to can to be able to do this. This is the time of year you start going into stores and, and markets and stuff and seeing you know green beans for forty cents a pound. I just was hatch chilies must be really coming on strong right now. They were ninety nine cents a pound at the store. There's a lot of chilies in a, in a pound. You know, so there's all kinds of things that you can like teach yourself to manufacture storable foods. Become a producer of food is one of my survival tenets, and that's multifaceted because one part of becoming a producer of food is learning how to grow you know, livestock or produce eggs or grow beans or grow tomatoes or peppers or potatoes or something like that. That's kind of a direct food production. But the, the indirect is where you learn how to take and make something that would otherwise be bad next week, last a long time, where you don't have to worry about it being in a freezer or something like that. So dehydration, canning, stuff like that, these are all good projects. And they're good, you know, non-growing season projects. There are good things to do, you know, it's cold, it's January, it's miserable. Everybody's locked in for the weekend, nobody wants to go outside, cabin fever's setting in a little bit, but, you know, you went to the store, the store had a bunch of something on sale, come home, make a bunch of salsa up, and learn to do a water bath can for your salsa. And, and then that starts the whole mind going like, well, so we made the salsa for mostly stuff we got at the store, but, you know, do we want to grow a certain type of chili pepper next year? Or maybe is there a certain tomato that's good for salsa? Do we want to do a tomatillo salsa and avoid tomato blight and have lots of tomatillos? There's all types of things that these little projects and, and learning things lead to. They lead to a better understanding of what you're trying to do in, in, in total. Um, installing rainwater catchment. Uh, there's a lot of places you look around on Craigslist and stuff, you can find Ibc's which are the bulk containers for 30 bucks 50 bucks it's, those things hold like 300 gallons the the biggest ones hold 330 that's the ones I have my uh, aquaponic system based on on 330 gallon tanks two of those 660 gallons a lot of water that's a lot of water it beats the hell out of a rain barrel at home Depot and and then so then you have think okay well Where would I catch the water? Where would I locate the catchment system? And how am I going to move the water from the catchment system to the garden, maybe into that plumbed wicking bed? And you put your whole design together. That's why you should be patient in the beginning and take time to really think about location of everything. When when we look at big properties through the permaculture lens, we say uh, water, access, structure. Where's the water? Where does the water flow? Where can I hold water? Where am I going to get water from, et cetera? Access. How can I move people, products, things, vehicles in, on, and around this piece of property? Structure. Where are the structures? Where would I build a structure? How does that structure tie into the access and the water? See, it, it, it just sounds like a catchphrase, but you see how integrated that is. How powerful those three words together are. Water, access, structure. I don't want to design access into my property. I don't want to design access out of my property. Put something in, I still want to be able to go there, move things, do things, or maybe the design itself lends itself to being part of the access. And if we do that, then all of this stuff makes sense. So when we start doing something like planning to catch rainwater, well, if we have 600 gallons of water over here, and we need to move it over there, and the only way to do that is with a bucket, we did the design wrong. But water moves through gravity and through something called volumetric pressure. So we could put a pipe under the ground, and that water can end up over there with no energy whatsoever if we do our jobs right as designers. And you start to see how these connections tie in together. And, and this, is, this is when people say, what's different about permaculture than just homesteading? It's the intent of the design to tie the functions together. That's one of the main things. And then creating habitat, natural spaces, and wildlife. This is probably highly overlooked and one of the more important things that I think you can do. Um, I had a grandmother who I spent a lot of time with when we lived in Florida before we moved to Pennsylvania. Uh, so she was more of more more of my more of a mother to me than my my actual mother, honestly and she loved birds she loved birds and the first thing she did when they got a new house was i'm going to get some bird feeders didn't matter if she had bird feeders from the last house new house new bird feeders and she'd figure out where the best place to put those bird feeders were and where she could see the birds best from the and she would put all those feeders in and she had her own seed mixes and stuff and man she loved her birds and she loved those birds so much and, and took so much interest in caring for them, they got to know her. And she had this stupid old lady hat she used to wear all the time, go out there and fill the bird feeders. And if she went out there without that hat on, them birds started freaking out and yelling and chirping and stuff because it was the wrong person. They knew the person in the hat. I mean, seriously. It's like, and that brought her so much joy. And I remember sitting watching these birds and squirrels and stuff and thinking, this is so cool. This is so cool. And I guess part of, part of me always took it for granted because I didn't realize people grew up any other way. You know, my grandmother lived in more typical suburban housing, but it was in, it was in Florida where everything's green all the time because it rains. And she always, you know, they would pick a house that's in a back lot or something like that. We lived in apartments, but we lived in apartments that were like in the middle of the swamp. Like the, my back sliding glass door, you opened it up and there was a, a woods and a swamp. So there were animals around me all the time. And then when you when you end up becoming successful and you, you move to a place like Dallas-Fort Worth and you move to a new newer subdivision where they cut all the trees down when they put the houses in, it seems so sterile and barren. And and something I've always done is, and Dorothy's always been big with it too, we feed the birds, put out bird feeders, put out bird houses. Uh, with the property like we have now, we have certain areas, we just kind of leave it alone. Put in water features. That brings in so much diversity. Um, last week, the dragonflies were just... I-, I couldn't believe how many dragonflies there were. There were just like hundreds of them in like swarms in different colors. And they were going in and out of my pond systems and stuff like that. Um, the fish. Even though the fish are, you know, they're captive, but still. And even the like the decorative ones, the, the koi, the long fin koi. You go out there and you feed those fish and you watch those fish feed and it's just... It is something that grounds you. And again, it makes you feel like this is my home. I don't just live here. This is my home. I don't just own it. I'm a steward of it. And that to me is what what homesteading is really all about. Having that steward-like service. that You're a caretaker of not just the place but the property itself. I think it's a pretty powerful thing. So I hope this encourages you to look at homesteading a little bit differently and think about what is the next step for yours, or maybe even encourages you to really start looking at your property as a homestead. Um, like I said, it, it was a big part of healing for me. I had, I had uh, quite a bit of damage in my life, not just from the events of 9-11. I think that brought it to the surface. I had lost who I was. I really had. I had become so consumed with becoming successful in my career uh, and advancing. Because, frankly, and I think that a part of it was good because I wanted to get myself basically out of poverty and get the experience and the knowledge and the opportunities to be able to do that. But there's a point where you have to kind of say, okay, I need something more in my life than just financial success. And this walk, as I said, that really began... On this day, 17 years ago, that led to this show is it, it would not be the same without agriculture, permaculture, food production. Knowing that there are there are you know hundreds of trees out there that I planted, and that there's there's probably close to a million trees or more that this show has inspired people to plant. That's a hell of a, a legacy to leave behind to future generations. And frankly, I ain't done yet. And, and we do need to recapture this. This is America. People are always talking about, you know, what has happened to America. Why don't Americans act the way that we really should anymore? I think this is a big reason why. If you think about it, with all the technological marvels that we have, um, it is easy in, in this world today if you, if you become, you know, even just remotely successful economically to have everything you want pretty much at your fingertips. Again, not everything to the extreme, you know, not a Maserati today and a Lamborghini tomorrow, but, you know, if you wanted, you know, a certain thing for dinner, you can order it and go out and get it. Um, The problem is that without something like this, nothing you have really has a connection to what you did to get it. So you go to you go to work and you balance spreadsheets for numbers that relate to widgets for a multinational company so that they can figure out who to send marketing material to that 's what you do and you work hard it 's not like what you do isn't important it 's not like it doesn 't actually help the company it 's not like it doesn't actually drive revenue it 's not like it 's not like like you just go to there and go to sleep i 'm saying you don 't work for it don 't misunderstand me or whatever it is that you do you you, know, you do some more of a blue-collar thing. You turn wrenches, and you're a mechanic. Or, or you, you know, you go, whatever it is you do, you go do that thing. Then they give you money, which for how the systems actually run, might as well be called space credits. You know, Federal Reserve space credits would be the same as dollars. It would just be a different name. It's the same shit. And then you take those dollars, and you go out and you buy yourself a, a, a bottle of hard cider. Okay, yes, you have every right to buy that bottle of hard cider. I will probably buy one next week to try out a new one for tastings at the workshop. Uh, I don't make every drop of hard cider I ever drink. I don't make every drop of mead that I ever drink. I do believe in commerce. I think that's a good thing. But when you don't do anything like that, nothing that you partake in, nothing that you really enjoy, do you have a direct connection to it? So the the work and the reward are separated. And that starts to lead us to a view of work that's negative. We don't like work. It's what we have to do, not what we want to do. But it's amazed me how many people I've talked to that tell me this story. When I was a kid, my mom, dad, whatever, told me to go to school and study real hard and get good grades. And, they would say things like, see that guy on the side of the road with picking a shovel, digging a hole? You don't want to be like that. That guy's working his ass off, and you want to get a good job with benefits and good pay. And I went to work real hard like they told me to, and I got good grades. Maybe I went to college or whatever, and I got my trade or my skill or my career, and I actually even really like my job to a degree, and I get paid good, and I'm not out there in the heat. Digging a hole in the middle of the day during the week all week long for less money than I make doing something i much rather do. Mom and Dad were right about that. But man, when I put a garden in, I found out how much I could get out of digging a hole. How much that did for me, for my soul, to dig a hole. I've heard that from so many people since I started this journey. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. When we actually tie our work directly to the reward or directly directly to the product that's created when we go do something and we make, I don't even care if we get the, all the stuff from the farmers market but we make a salsa we can it we have a shelf full of this salsa and we take a jar down and we open it we dump it out and we serve that to guests that's so much more rewarding even than a really good product from the store because it's not, I went off and did Widgetville work, got space credits, and then paid some company that manufactures this in New Mexico to ship it on a truck. To It's so disconnected. And that's what I say that homesteading is grounding. It reestablishes that connection. It's now yours because you created it. And I think that's another reason people love entrepreneurship, even though it's a totally different topic, because now I am driving the creation process. So, again, guys, give it a shot. If, you, if you're a person that's listening to this and you like a lot of stuff we talk about, you kind of do like the, you know, put your stuff away, and maybe you listen more for the business topics or whatever it is for you, and you just kind of like, you know, the gardening thing stuff, that's not my thing. Just, you know, think about it, because there's ways to do some really easy food production. Let me give you one. How about sprouting? I can get you into sprouting for two dollars, probably less. But I'm hedging my bet. You need some seeds of whatever you're going to sprout, and a little seed goes a long way with sprouting. You need a mason jar, a mason jar. You know, like like a canning jar. You need a ring, the ring that holds the lid on. But you don't need the centerpiece. You need a piece of screen, like hardware cloth, like screen like for your windows. You just need a little piece, a little bit bigger than the hole. You take your seeds and you put them in the jar. You put water in the jar, put the screen over, and you turn the ring on. You let them soak. Depending on what you're sprouting, you'll have to look it up. Some soak hardly at all, some soak overnight, and then drain them. You let them soak. Then, turn the jar upside down and drain all the water out. Then you probably have a little thing that dishes sit in right next to your sink, a a, a dish rack. Just take the jar and set it upside down in the dish rack. The next morning or evening, come into the kitchen, pick up a jar, take the ring off, fill it up with water, put the ring back on with the hardware cloth, turn it upside down, drain the water out of it, set it back in a dish rack. When they're sprouted enough, eat them. I mean, how, how easy is that? And all of a sudden you have a fresh thing that you're producing, you're doing almost no work. I mean, you're, you're literally doing almost no work to produce. You can go a little bit further and do microgreens. You, know, you can grow microgreens in little clamshell things that are about as big as a, a salad bowl and grow four or five different kinds of microgreens under a single light on a shelf in the corner of your room. And now you've got something that you've started with that you're actually taking control of. And it it changes the way you view things. I know it sounds crazy, but it is that butterfly effect. It's that one little ripple that just keeps going through. And it can start out with something that simple. With that, I do hope hope that you enjoyed today's show. And uh, even though I think I kind of went a little bit different of a way than I planned, I'm pretty pleased with the way it came out. I do want to hear your stories. Where were you? Where were you? 2001, on the day those planes hit those buildings, what were you doing? What were you thinking? And did you, like most Americans, no matter what you thought about how or when or why or how angry you were, did you just simply want to be with the people you cared about most? Most people did. And that's what most people did do. They went home. There were many of us that were accustomed to traveling that were away from our families that even though like the people we work for like i guarantee it like my company was not the greatest but they had no problem with getting us home but for several days they grounded every airplane in america you couldn't get home where were you on that day what did it mean for you and what were things like for you before and what were they like after and do you see that day as a moment that is a dividing line in your life? I think most Americans that are alive today that are adults and that were, that were adults or young adults at the time that this occurred 17 years ago kind of define their life right at that point as being a before and after moment. And I can't think of anything that's happened in the world uh, that's personal or global that I can see is more of a finite point of division in my life than 9-11-2001. If you enjoy this show and you like the work that we do, I want to remind you that one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. I have a product for you today I brought to you first uh, back in March. I love this product. It was one of those ones I kind of forgot about. Uh, over the years And I went, oh yeah, I need to make some jerk chicken It's Walker's Wood Jamaican jerk seasoning uh, I just used the mild To do up some chicken legs uh, Last night for Nick Ferguson He was here He's got a big project going on down in South Texas And uh, my buddy David uh, Brought his trailer over to lend it to Nick for his Because he's off grid for this couple weeks And his buddy Toby We sat out on the back porch And ate some of these chicken legs And I think it was a big hit we're actually going to be serving them at the the, the fall workshop this year. That's why I, I cooked. It was research and development. You know, it was it was a tough thing to do. It was hard work, but I was willing to do it for you because I cared just that much. Uh, but I think actually most of you probably should start out with the mild. I have links to the hot and spicy and the mild. Uh, it's really easy to use. The way I did the, the legs last night, I just rubbed them down, put them in a Tupperware bowl, threw the lid on it, stuck it in the refrigerator, left it overnight. And then I used uh, the rack. I use these racks that you hang them from so that the kind of air cooks around them and crisps the skin up, and they just came out fantastic. Juicy as all get out. Good flavor. This stuff's easy. You can make your own jerk seasoning, and we talked about making a lot of your own stuff today, but I'm going to tell you that this stuff, this makes it way too easy to go around messing around trying to make your own. Uh, check it against again. It's made by a company called Walker's Wood. Also remember you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get a bunch of great discounts to, to stuff you're probably going to buy anyway over the year, and that will get you your money back and you support the show. It's really, really easy to do. Uh, and it, it doesn't really cost a lot of money to begin with, but again, the kind of thing I look at putting out as a product with MSB is I want it to be an investment. I want you to be able to support the show, I want you to be able to take those discounts. I want you to use them. And What I really want is not you to get your money back. I want you at the end of the year to go, gee, I saved $87 last year, and I gave Jack 50. I made a $37 return on my investment of $50. That's that's what I want it to be, and I hear from a lot of you guys that it is. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on am uh, um, uh, <laughs> sorry, members. Uh, you can sign up there. All right. Last thing of the day is the song of the day. We are wrapping up our, our fifth song that we're going to feature from Jamie Dupree. Uh, this is, again, he's the guy that does the harp guitars. This is a beautiful piece. This is actually an electric harp guitar on this one, uh, but it still played very acoustic-like. It's, it's not, you know, what you think of when you think of electric guitar. Um, the song that he's got a cover here for was originally put out by Rush. It's called Closer to the Heart. Um, I said yesterday, I think Wind of Change is my favorite song. This guy's done with that amazing guitar. This is a close second. This is uh, this was a good song when Rush did it. as an instrumental piece of music with one man and a guitar. This is an excellent, excellent piece of music. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life. If times to get tough, or even if they don't.